Well, good morning, everybody. So this is the final sermon in our series on work. Thank God it's Monday. And so far we've covered God's design of work as being good and uh, of benefit for us and a blessing to us. Uh, We've covered the impact of sin resulting in work becoming hard and the impact of the gospel on uh, work, on our attitude and the ultimate goal of our work. And uh, after that fundamental teaching, we, we have covered a number of topics all to do with work. We've had sermons on work-life balance, on working with excellence, sharing the gospel at work, raising children as a vocation, and dealing with stress. And if you've missed any of these, I would encourage you to, to listen in online because they're really very, very relevant to our everyday lives. So my topic today is working for the long haul. And at the same time as addressing that issue, I want to try and tie the series together and to focus our gaze on Jesus. Because whatever life throws at us in the long haul, it is Jesus that is going to help us to persevere through that. So the likelihood is that most people will work for more than 40 years, maybe in the same job, although these days that is much less, uh, happens much less often than it used to. Maybe in the same vocation, but then again, a lot of people choose to take a career break during their working lives. One thing is certain, though, we will work for a long time in whatever we do. We also have other long-term commitments. Bringing up children is a long-term commitment. Hopefully not 40-plus years, but you never know. Marriage is till death us do part, often for more than 60 years. Our commitment to local church may be for the long haul. And as Christians, our commitment to Christ is for life. His commitment to us, though, is for eternity. So how do we remain motivated and fulfilled and maintain our vision and passion? How do we avoid sinking into boredom or going through the motions or even ticking off the days until retirement? What are we working for anyway? For money? For status? For possessions? Fulfilment? Ultimately, what is it for? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 18, uh, 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I spoke about my work background a few weeks ago, so I won't repeat it all, but just to give a few reasons why I may have been asked to cover this particular topic. I retired from GSK two years ago so that Wendy and I could move up here to be a part of Real Life Church. Up until then, I had worked in scientific jobs for 33 years, 29 of those at Glaxo. Wendy and I have been married for 32 years, and we were part of the community church in Bishop Stortford for about 25 years. We've raised three children who are now in their 20s, so all long-haul things. 
The long haul is not always easy. True, you have wonderful highs. But there can also be times when we struggle along. Fortunately, though, the answer to success in life, to living life well, does not all lie within us as Christians. Paul said in Romans 8.13, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the Bible, the Christian life is pictured as a race. So if you have a Bible, would you please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. The Christian life is pictured as a long-distance race, a marathon, not just a short sprint. None of us would get up one morning and attempt to run a marathon with no training, without the right equipment, and certainly not without the desire and purpose to do it, beyond it just seeming like a good idea at the time. Equally, a race of that duration, it is necessary to pace yourself, to take on refreshment as you go, and to make sure that you have enough left to finish strong. So I'm just going to read from Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer to the Hebrews has just finished surveying the achievements of heroes of faith from the past and is encouraging us, the readers, to be both inspired and challenged by their example. In addition to those heroes of faith, I'm sure we all have our own heroes of faith who we know personally and who are no doubt, an inspiration to us. We can also read biographies and testimonies of, about people who have achieved amazing things for God through their lives. And I encourage you to do that. You will be both inspired and challenged as you do. So in view of all this inspiration and challenge that the writer of the Hebrews reminds his readers of, what are we to do? So there are five things that I'd just like to draw out from this passage. The first is that we are to run the race marked out for us. Let's notice that it is a race marked out for us. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God prepares work for us to do in advance. Acts 17:26 says this, From one man, he, that is God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. We are placed where we live. And we are placed by God where we work. But interestingly it says, men of every nation. So actually our neighbours are placed where they are, with us. Our work colleagues are placed where they are with us. So let's see it in a bigger picture of God placing us, not just in our work, but with the people we work with, not just where we live, but with the people we live nearby. 
Maybe you feel called to your particular vocation or place of work, but maybe that isn't your experience. But God has placed you there. For the first three years of my working life, I did not feel called by God to a particular job. I followed um, a career based on my qualifications. Did I feel called to study a particular topic at university? No, I didn't. I just went with what I was interested in. Chemistry, believe it or not. Um, But, you know, God leads us through what he puts within us. God gives us our gifts and our talents and makes us the way we are. And in a way, God leads us through that, even if it's not a specific hearing from God. A verse that impressed upon me when I started work and that really helped me was from Colossians chapter 3. It's a verse we've looked at a couple of times. And although I didn't feel called, it, it made me think differently about my work right from the start. It's this. And whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. This impacted my motivation for work from the start and the values that I tried to work by. Our primary reason for working is for God, as that passage says, and our primary purpose on this earth is to glorify God. You know, our call into Christ to follow him and to reflect his glory is greater than a calling into a career, a lifestyle, or even into Christian ministry. This verse made me want to do my absolute best for God to work with excellence, as Ben and Charlotte spoke about. My motivation was to honour and glorify God, but that did also reap material benefits and success at work. I made the decision that truth and integrity and faithfulness would be key values I would work to. I also wanted my work to contribute positively to society through improving the lives of others, both people who used the products I helped develop and people I worked with. But more on those later. One day I was driving home from work and I heard God say to me, apply for a job, or no, pray for a job at Glaxo. It was on my way home. I passed it every day. It wasn't an audible voice, but I knew it was God. So I prayed. Shortly after that, a job came up and it was exactly what I wanted to do, but they required more experience than I had. So I wrote in and I said that I was really interested in the job. I said, I don't have as much experience as you want, but do you have anything else that is in a similar line of work that requires less experience. So they did what everybody does and send you an application form anyway. And then a little while later they said, will you come in for a chat? So I went in for a chat and um, the chat turned out to be an interview. And um, during the course of this interview I realised they were expecting me to be there all day, which caused me significant problems because I had told my current employer that I was going to be out for the morning for an appointment and I had um, to give a a presentation to senior management in the afternoon. So I thought all I can do is explain my predicament. So during the course of this interview I explained that I believed I'd been invited in for a chat um, and 
that I couldn't stay all day. And the guy who was interviewing me said this. He said, we're interviewing more people, but you are the person I want. So don't worry about it. The job is yours if you want it. You can come back for the rest of the interview another day. I thought, that is amazing. I knew clearly that God had provided me with a job. I knew I was called to be there, but it was a fantastic example of how honesty up front helps. The other thing he said to me is, we knew that you weren't going to try and pull the wool over our eyes. So that was great. So we are called or placed by God in our place of work, and God is with us. 1 Corinthians 7.24 says this, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. With God. John Piper wrote, Christians do not just go to work, they go to work with God. They do not just do a job, they do a job with God. I worked in research and often experiments didn't work or we couldn't discover how to do something. And in those times, I would pray for inspiration. And very many times, I came up with an idea that that caused a whole lot to work. Many times I found myself not knowing what to do. And I would ask God for strength and wisdom in the situation. And again, many times, he showed me the way forward. Knowing God's presence and his fellowship at work while we're bringing up children in whatever we're doing for the long haul is really important. And to know that we are working with God helps us to run our race. The second thing from the Hebrews passage is that we are to run with perseverance. During my 29 years at Glaxo, there were great times and there were difficult times, but I knew I was called. I knew God was with me. Likewise, Wendy and I knew we were called to be part of the community church in Bishop Stortford. And in both church and work life, there were exciting times And there were difficult times. There were times when I was involved in leadership or key projects and times when I was not included. There were times when I thought, this is going really well and times when I thought, this is not really going very well at all. But I was called, so with God's help, I persevered. Perseverance is an important characteristic if we are to do anything for the long haul. Peter speaks of a list of attributes we need to cultivate if we are going to keep going in our faith and to not fall away. And perseverance is one of those. It's, um, the whole passage is from 1 Peter, 3, sorry, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 8. I'm just going to read from verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance. And to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. While I was working at at Glaxo, a lady that I knew very well became seriously ill. And she asked me to go and pray for her. And she had a particularly aggressive cancer. And I went and prayed for her two or three times. Everyone at work knew that, humanly speaking, there was little hope for her. And everybody knew 
that I was going to pray for her. And we talked about it. It was, she was somebody that people really liked. And um, I thought, this is going to be amazing. She is going to get healed. Everybody is going to think, God is amazing. They're all going to be queuing up at my office saying, what can I do to be saved? But that didn't happen. The last time I went to pray for her, she was very, very sick and amazingly thin. And shortly after that, she died. And you know, we have to persevere through these disappointments if we are going to remain productive in our faith. We have to know that God doesn't change. God is faithful. God is good. God is true to his word. He doesn't change. But we don't understand all the things that happen. God's wisdom is higher than ours. His wisdom is greater than ours. He is God. We are not God. And perseverance, folks, is one of those things that we need to cultivate in order to to continue on through the long haul. I think it's actually easier sometimes to persevere at work than it is in church life because we have to work. Whereas church life is seen as optional for some. But we must ha- I think we must really guard against becoming what I call pick and mix Christians. People who hop from one church to another as things are not to our liking or as we are brought to a place where we have to face issues that are difficult. I know I will never find the perfect church and there's one very good reason for that and that is because I am imperfect. Somebody once said, if you find the perfect church, whatever you do, don't join it. So let our commitment to local church be based on calling and based on our alignment with vision. We may not like the colour of the carpet or the colour of the walls get painted or something actually more important than that, which is not, however, fundamentally important. We stayed in Bishop Stortford until we were called to go, not until we found something we didn't like. So summing up so far, what are we working for? And I think this is true whatever job we're doing, whether we're um, doing manual work, whether we're CEO of a massive company, or whether we're somewhere in between, or whether we're bringing up children, or whatever we're doing. Apart from the obvious reasons everyone works, reasons to help us persevere are we're following a calling, perhaps, we work to honour and glorify God, we work to improve society or to bless other people, and we do it with God. The third thing, we're to throw off hindrances and sin, or to put it another way, to live differently for God's glory. So how do we glorify God through our work? I suggest through the way we work, the way we live, and the way we use the rewards that come from work. I said earlier that I determined to make truth and integrity two key values by which I would work, and this meant I had to make decisions sometimes that were different to those people around me were making. On one occasion, I went into the uh, department office at work and noticed that it had been completely refurbished. It looked fantastic. I said to the secretary how lovely it looked, and as I left, I made some light-hearted remark. Um, a while later, I, whether it was the same day or not, I can't remember, but a while later, I was summoned to the head of department's office, who said to me, why have you told my secretary that... Um, we're not buying lab equipment because we're spending the money on the office. 
I thought, oh my word. You don't want to get out of, out of um, favour with this department secretary. So, um, I knew that I'd touched a raw nerve. I knew I'd made a mistake and it was my responsibility to sort it out. So I went to her and apologised. I didn't say, you took it the wrong way. I said, I'm sorry I said that. Please forgive me. And interestingly, following on from that, I never had ever any problems getting work done by her. She was always did my work. And she, she often came and asked me questions about um, IT stuff, that when new systems came into the department and everything. You know, because I lived to my values, our working relationship improved, even though I had done something particularly stupid. Right. I would also like to touch briefly upon a thorny subject, money. When we work, we're usually paid. That is, of course, with the exception of full-time mums or people doing voluntary work. And so we are working for money. And there is, of course, nothing wrong with that. But if money becomes our main reason to work, we will not be fulfilled. As Christians, I would like to challenge us to consider how our money can be used to God's glory in building his kingdom and in blessing other people. What, where are we investing? In heaven or in earth or on earth? From the start of our marriage, Wendy and I decided that the first money out of our account after payday would be our gift to our local church. And in fact, both of us were doing that as students. Our understanding of biblical giving based on the Old Testament was that one-tenth of our income would be appropriate. But of course, we're not in Old Testament. We're in New Testament. We live under grace. We do not live under law. So why would we restrict ourselves to 10% if God asks us to give more than that? We shouldn't feel limited by Old Testament law. Sometimes we have given more. But usually, we've put aside one-tenth of our income before tax as what we think is the right amount to make as our gift to the local church. And there's a promise concerning this, concerning our obedience in this matter in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. It says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. It was not always easy to manage on 90%, but God always provided. And the Bible speaks of tithes and free will offerings. Um, and I believe that these are completely separate things. So if we have a gift day at church or we ha raise money to support a missionary overseas or we feel prompted to um, contribute to a disaster fund or to help somebody, a friend in need, do we then think, right, I, I'll give into that but actually I'm going to reduce my regular gift to the church accordingly? No, that isn't the way it works. These things are separate. God calls us to be generous as he is generous to us. 
in the early days when we actually had little money to spare, we were able to use one of my quarterly bonuses to help somebody who actually had less money than we did to buy a car. And shortly after that, our own car was written off and we were the ones who were in need. And God provided for our need at that time through other people in the church who gave us money to help us buy a new car. I want to actually encourage us to review our attitudes to money and how generous we are to God and towards others. I can testify that the promise in Malachi is absolutely true. God says, test me in this. And you know the windows of heaven are mentioned a couple of other times in the Bible and once is when God opened the windows of heaven to flood the earth. So I think that should speak to us about the magnitude of the resources of God available when he promises to us. I recognise that this is a difficult subject and I recognise that probably some of you are looking at me thinking he is mad. But I would encourage you, if you do want to talk to to me about it or challenge me about it or argue with me about it or anything, please do. I'd I'd love to talk to you about it because this is something we really need as God's people to get sorted and to get right in our lives. And God will use us amazingly as we do that. The fourth thing, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to focus on Jesus because he is the one who will help us work out our faith in the workplace, in raising children, in serving in our local church, in our marriages and in all of our interactions with other people, both believers and unbelievers. So how do we work out our faith in our workplace? What does that mean? Ultimately, we would love to see people come to Christ through living out our faith, but there are other potential impacts. We may be used by God to at least change or at least impact the culture in our workplace or part of society. We may serve others but never see them come through to Christ. But there are two things I believe we need to do for our faith to impact our culture or the people we are with. The first thing is that people need to know that we're Christians. Um, Many times through my working life, I either started up new teams or was involved in somebody else's new team startup. And invariably, you go around the table and say, please tell us a little bit about your work history or your project you've been involved with or optionally, it's usually optional because a lot of people don't like it, what you're interested in. So I always took the opportunity during those things to say, I'm a Christian. And I always used that in my own new team startups to give me an easy way of saying to everyone, up front, I'm a Christian. Having done that, of course, we need to make sure that we do not um, put obstacles in the way of the gospel through the way we work or behave. Philippians 1.27 says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We do this through living and working with high standards of excellence, integrity and goodwill, and by making ourselves open and available to people. There was somebody who um, had worked in my team for some time who... um, after one of our mergers, went off sick with depression. And um, came back into a completely different team, um, different area. And I, at the time, had a vacancy in my team and I knew that the skills that this person had would fit with that job. 
I also realised that the skills that person had did not fit with the role they were in and therefore I wasn't surprised they were off with depression and struggling. So I proposed to my boss that I gave up my vacancy to the other group and took this person into my team. My boss said, okay, I'll agree to that, but on condition that you process manage this person out of the organisation. So I said, I can't do that, but what I will do is process manage this person into the organisation. And um, that's what happened. He did really well and he is actually still employed today. This is a long time ago. He's still employed today. So I thought that was a way of working out my faith and my values. The head of our division came over from America a few times each year and sometimes arranged one-to-one meetings with people at my level in the organisation. I held to my values during the meeting, always said what I thought and um, sometimes challenged things that resulted in quite robust discussions. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder what he really thinks. But one day he said to me, Philip, I enjoy my meetings with you because I know you tell me the truth. That just meant so much to me. As far as I'm aware, none of the people that I've mentioned in these examples and in another one where I felt uneasy about somebody we were going to make redundant and pushed my reasons up the organisation and got that changed. None of these people, as far as I know, um, have come through to know God. But I may have contributed to changing the culture where I worked. But sometimes God does more. One day, a lady came to see me uh, who'd worked in my team in the past but was now unhappy where she was working. She came to seek advice, something actually many people did over the years. During our conversation, I felt prompted to ask a particular question that seemed to have nothing to do with our conversation. I hesitated, but I actually couldn't get this thing out of my mind, so I asked it. In response to what I assume was a word of knowledge, she became even more distressed and said, I can't do anything about that though, can I? I agreed with her, but told her that Jesus can. To cut a long story short, she ended up coming on an Alpha course and getting saved. Shortly late after that, her self-confessed atheist husband started to come along to church because he was concerned about what his wife was getting into. And during one of the church meetings, he experienced what he could only describe as the presence of God that he obviously didn't believe in so strongly that he then decided to go on an Alpha course and he also got saved. And um, those two went off to help with the church plant. So sometimes God does more. When people at my level in the organisation were made redundant, as I was, they were often made to leave immediately because of the amount they knew and everything else and that they could mess stuff up. But I was asked to stay on for some of my notice period to help transition somebody else into part of my role and also to ensure that a regulatory filing for one of our most important new drugs was correct and accurate. 
I took that as an honour and a testimony to the values that I had displayed with God's help during my career at Glaxo. Everyone knew why I chose to leave. In fact, they talked about it. And I trust that as they think of me, they will somehow be turned towards Jesus. Finally, we are to consider Jesus. Jesus is our model for running our race with perseverance. Yes, we can get inspiration from our heroes of faith, but Jesus is well out in front. Jesus knows what it is to be in it for the long haul. He was involved in creation and he will be here at the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Hebrews passage says, Consider him, Jesus, who is, who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God has been in the story of redemption for the long haul. When God created man, he showed his desire for a people right at the beginning, a people with relationship with God without shame or hindrance. And he said, go and multiply. Multiply, I want a people. Everything, though, went horribly wrong and mankind was judged through the flood. But salvation came through Noah and the ark and this was a shadow, a hint of what was to come. God called Abraham and promised from him a people would come that would be a blessing to the nations. That people did prosper and multiply but found themselves in slavery in Egypt with um, unable to escape. Hundreds of years later, God called another man, Moses. And the God's people were saved through extraordinary miracles and they came out of Egypt with, release, with riches and were saved through the Red Sea. This is a, a foretaste of what was to come. They were slave, saved from the slavery of sin. Despite God's care for his people and leading them to the land that he had promised, there were times when the people rebelled and God judged them. But even then, God demonstrated faith as he responded to the prayers of Moses and other people and, and, and limited his judgment. Many years later, in the promised land, the people rebelled again and demanded a king. God was their king. But they wanted a king like the nations around them had a king. God provided them with a king through his grace and ultimately King David who, who led the people into the ways of God who saved them from their enemies and who led them into worship. David had his human weaknesses but he showed them the hints of a greater king who would follow, a king who would reign on David's throne forever. Years and years of ups and downs followed as God's people were led by a series of godly and ungodly kings and as God spoke through the prophets, through the writings of the Old Testament. Following all this revelation, there were still 400 years between the final writings of the Old Testament and before the voice in the wilderness of John the Baptist proclaiming the coming of a saviour. And then he came to live on this earth. Jesus, the Son of God, fully God and fully man. God was still committed to having a people. But all throughout history, God's people battled with sin. 
they were unable to keep the law as we are. They were unable to live up to God's standards as we are. We all fall short of the glory of God. There were sacrifices for this, sacrifices for that. The blood flowed, but still people were in slavery to sin, just as God's people were enslaved in Egypt. Jesus came to live among men. He lived a life without sin. He revealed God to us through his life on earth. He forgave sin. He healed the sick. He set people free from oppression. He fed the hungry and he taught us how to live. Jesus is the one that all of the Old Testament points to. He is the greater king of whom David was just a shadow. He is the one spoken of through the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. Jesus walked resolutely through life to finish the race that was set before him. When his disciples spoke against the plans he had to go to Jerusalem and face all that was was going to happen to him, his response was, get behind me, Satan. A pretty strong response. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the passage that Scott used last week to preach from on the subject of stress, while going through unspeakable agonies as he looked into the cup of God's wrath. Jesus said this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. In other words, if there is any other way. You know, Jesus looked into that cup of the wrath of God, which was the, the right judgment for all the sin of the world. And he was terrified. It was agony for him to look into that wrath, that cup of God's wrath. He said, if there is any other way, let it be so. But Jesus knew there was no other way. In the end, Jesus went to the cross The details of his ordeal and terrible suffering were written down in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament hundreds of years before the event were played out and they were written down with remarkable accuracy. But Jesus knew the scripture. He knew what was coming. He went into this with his eyes wide open. Jesus died on the cross and his final agony was separation from God the Father as the sin of the world as my sin and your sin was piled upon him. At about three in the afternoon Jesus cried out in a loud voice Eli, Eli, Lima Sabachthani which means my God, my God why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned his face away as he cannot look upon sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an amazing exchange. What an amazing exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. Jesus ran his race. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we who believe do not need to drink that terrible cup which our sins deserve. He endured separation 
from the Father so that we who believe in him will not suffer eternal separation from God. The Hebrews passage says that Jesus endured for the joy set before him. Jesus died and was buried but God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The blood of animals was temporary in forgiving sin but the blood of Jesus is permanent. Each of us will bow the knee before Jesus either voluntarily or because we have to. We all have a choice to make. We can accept the amazing gift of God, believe in Jesus, turn away from our sin and follow him as our Lord and Saviour or we can choose to take our chance with the cup of God's wrath and face eternal separation from him. If you have not chosen to follow Jesus, I urge you to make that choice today. Please speak to somebody about this before you leave today. Jesus did not come on a whim. God had planned all this for eternity. The redemption story reveals God in it for the long haul, showing patience and endurance beyond that which we will ever be asked to bear. As we run our races for the long haul, in work, in our families, in church life and in our relationships with God, let us consider Jesus so that we will not grow weary and lose heart and so that we can say at the end of our lives what Paul did. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. What I would love us to do now is to worship Jesus, to focus on him and to wonder at the amazing redemption story that we are a part of. So, can we just... While Dave and uh, the band come up, perhaps could could we uh, stand? I'd like to pray for us. Jesus, I thank you that you are our example as we run our races, as we seek to persevere, as we seek to live out our lives in our workplaces, as we look forward to what will be the long haul. Lord Jesus, we need your help. We need you, Jesus. But thank you too that we can look to you as the pioneer, as the starter and as the perfecter of our faith, as our example, as the one who has run the race, as the one who has won the victory. Jesus, I pray for all of my friends here today that 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 you will help them in the long haul. That you will help them persevere. That you will help them to be resolute in following the things that you call them to do. That you will help them to live out their faith. Lord Jesus, we come to you in worship. 
but we also come to you for help. We love you, Jesus. Yeah. Amen.